Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently recorded a bonus episode on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and we'll soon talk about Pixar's Elemental and undoubtedly other topics as well. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Our regular co-host, Genevieve Koski, cannot join us because she's moved to Berlin, but says she'll be back soon. Also with us are actors who will be playing the parts of myself, Tasha, and Scott, but we're going to keep them off stage for now. This week, we're going to be discussing two films with meta conceits, albeit quite different meta conceits used to different ends by two strikingly different directors. One is a film about a play that becomes a hall of mirrors that threatens to devour its creator. The other is a film about a TV special about a play, although where one layers ends and the other begins is a bit porous. Tasha, can you tell us about what we're going to be discussing? Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City, is about a group of young scientists, junior astronomers and space cadets to be specific, attending an annual gathering in the remote desert town of Asteroid City, where they inadvertently have an encounter with an extraterrestrial. Sort of. According to the movie, Asteroid City is also the name of a play by a famous mid-century playwright, and the framing device of Anderson's film is a behind-the-scenes TV special about that play. But as the film progresses, it becomes increasingly clear that the TV special, the theatrical production, and the film within those two frameworks are all commenting on each other and exploring some of the same themes of loss and identity. It put us in mind of Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut, Synecdoche, New York, in which Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a playwright who begins the film in crisis, then discovers that a MacArthur Genius Grant doesn't solve his problems so much as he gives him an opportunity to blow them up to epic proportions. So this week, we'll enter the recursive world of Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, and then next week, we'll look to the skies and wonder what's out there with the expansive cast of Asteroid City. Stay tuned. I'm lonely. And? I'm afraid I'm going to die. Anything else? I don't know what's wrong with me, and I want to do something important while I'm still here. That would be the time to do it, yes. Death comes faster than you think. The idea is to do a massive theater piece. What was this used for? Plays. Like theater plays? Have I disappointed you somehow? Everyone is disappointing. The more you know someone. I don't know what I'm doing. Knowing that you don't know is the most essential step to knowing, you know? I want you to beg me on your knees for a kiss. We need to investigate the essence of each being. You're weirdly close to what I've visualized for this character. Glad to be weirdly close. You smell weird. What do I smell like? It's like you're menstruating. I don't know. I don't menstruate, so I don't know I can smell like I'm menstruating. You tell me. I've been following you for 20 years, and I've learned everything about you. So hire me, and you'll see who you truly are. By the time Charlie Coffin's Synecdoche, New York, debuted in 2008, its writer and director had secured an abundance of goodwill. 
With being John Malkovich an adaptation, Kaufman had written two of the most acclaimed films of the past decade. Playfully postmodern and thematically rich, they'd also been, in their own way, crowd-pleasers that were interested in prompting philosophical questions, but also knew how to leaven those questions with bursts of absurdist humor. Shirley Kaufman's directorial debut would be similar. But while Synecdoche, New York is clearly a Charlie Kaufman film, a comedy filled with unmistakably Kaufman gags like a perpetually burning house and a character who inexplicably picks up a thick German accent after moving abroad, it has no interest in even a hint of levity. It's a bleak journey into depression, humiliation, and self-absorption, whose final destination is death. Its laughs stick in the throat. The film inspired raves, confusion, and some disappointed pan. Here's an excerpt from Claudia Puig's review in USA Today. Quote, Writer-director Charlie Kaufman constructs a world seemingly worth exploring, then callously goes about destroying it. And even as coherence goes up in smoke, one is made to sit, watch, and absorb its decaying atmosphere. Presumably, the film is about human decay in its many facets, physical, ethical, artistic. It's a meditation on creativity, failure, decrepitude, and the imminence of death, end quote. I quote that not because she's wrong, but because it's an apt summary of what Synecdoche is up to, even if it's in the context of a negative review. I also understand Puig's frustration. Synecdoche New York is one of those films that asks viewers to get on its bleak wavelength and doesn't care if it alienates anyone who can't. It is a film about failure, decrepitude, and the imminence of death, and one that takes an immersive approach to those subjects. Unlike being John Malkovich, Synecdoche doesn't directly enter the mind of its protagonist, a playwright and theater director named Caden Cotard, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, but it never really strays from his perspective either. As the film begins, Caden is preparing to open a new production of Death of a Salesman in the regional Schenectady, New York theater that serves as his home base. His salesman's defining feature is a cast of young actors playing Willie Loman and other roles traditionally played by those in middle age and beyond. The tragedy, Caden explains offhandedly to a cast member, is that we know that you, the young actor, will end up in this very place of desolation. It's a funny line, but Caden's not joking. Aging and despair are his obsessions, and he lives in a world that confirms his worst suspicions about life at every turn, be it the attitude of his wife Adele, a painter of tiny portraits played by Catherine Keener, or the image of a doomed character who looks a lot like Caden in the cartoons watched by his young daughter, Olive. Soon, events start to confirm his fears, too. Shortly after his salesman production has its hit debut, Adele leaves for Berlin with Olive and a friend named Maria, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, and the film starts to abandon any ties to realism. With his gift from the MacArthur Fellowship, Caden rents an enormous warehouse in Manhattan and pursues the ambitious project of recreating his own life with a cast that will play him and his friends and lovers on sets that exactly mirror their real-life inspirations. But this project also requires the play to have a play within the play about the making of the play, and so on. Caden engages in a fraught romance with a theater receptionist named Tammy, played by Emily Watson, and marries an actress in his troupe named Claire, played by Michelle Williams. All the while, years speed by. America descends into some kind of dystopia that goes without comment as Caden pursues the twin goals of reinventing theater and finding the meaning of his own life. As the film comes to an abrupt end, he fails at both. One way of looking at Synecdoche, New York, is as a film in conversation with adaptation. Where that film ends with its Charlie Kaufman surrogate, a character named Charlie Kaufman, played by Nicolas Cage, accepting that some of the cliches and storytelling conventions he's been rebelling against work and work for a reason, Synecdoche plays like a retraction of that sentiment. 
characters float in and out of Caden's life on trajectories that look less like arcs and pinballs hitting a series of bumpers. Caden grows older, but no wiser. Late in the film, he takes on the humiliating job of surreptitiously cleaning Adele's apartment. It could be a last-ditch effort to restore their relationship, or that he's pursuing a new kink, but Caden mostly doesn't seem to know what else to do with the life he seems to hate, but nonetheless fears losing. But maybe he sees that cleaning job as part of the art that's become inextricable from his life. Maybe for Caden, that humiliation is fodder for the play, and hence part of his pursuit of a truth that can only be found by exploring new ways to gaze inward and new fears to entertain. By mirroring that pursuit in all its absurdity and apparent shapelessness, the film around Caden seems to suggest he might be right. Why do I need to see a neurologist? It's for a look-see. The eyes are part of the brain, after all. No, that's not true, is it? Why would I say it if it weren't true? It doesn't seem right. Like morally correct or right isn't accurate? I don't know. Accurate? I guess. Okay, so let's start with the title. Synecdoche is a literary device in which a part stands in for a whole. A classic example would be using the crown when referring to royalty or the Oval Office to refer to the president. What does it mean here? So I think there are a couple of ways to look at this movie, and we're probably going to do both of them. But like this question is a pretty good example. It's kind of a synecdoche itself. You can look at it as just in a very simple literal literal kind of way, the play that Caden is making is a stand-in for humanity. It's a stand-in for art. And he's creating this kind of like virtual world that's meant to reflect like all of the real world. But it's it's just a small piece of it. But it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because he stops trying to create a piece of art that represents the world and starts starting to create a piece of art that is the world. And that's where he loses control of it. So I think the play is a synecdoche in that it's trying to represent a thing much bigger than itself. But you could also just go through, like pick through this film sort of scene by scene, moment by moment, and come up with like a thousand different sort of motifs and, and recurring ideas that stand in for something bigger. You know, Caden is obsessed with his health and the diseases that he's going through. And that's kind of a stand in for, you know, death, the death and decay of humanity as a whole. His sort of on again, off again, love interest Hazel lives in a house that's burning down, which is kind of a writ small stand in for mortality and the choices we make. Like everything here feels like a small symbol of a much larger thing. And I think to the degree you talk about in your keynote about, you know, this film kind of like spiraling out of control into a a gigantic, disorganized, depressing thing maybe comes from the fact that like every small thing here is meant to represent a larger thing. Yeah. But though though in a way plays can do that, I guess, but like this thing gets so large that the attempt seems to be to kind of make a play about everything <laughs> like it, you know not maybe it is a part still a part that stands it for a whole but like there's something it's so it becomes so so absurd and so gargantuan and so all-consuming and yet at the same time it gets narrower and narrower that's the kind of the interesting contradiction in the in the movie is that is that it, it is also about one person uh, you know in, in one person's experience 
and and a certain amount of solipsism that goes into the you know the life of this character and and artists in general of just thinking that you're you're saying something about about the world through yourself but you're really just you're missing so much i mean like the, the, one of the ongoing things i really like about this movie is that the glimpses that we get of the world outside of this play is just chaos like like the actual world the world that is not involved in creating this piece of art over you know 17 plus years is falling apart and and, and it's nothing that he's paying attention to or is accounting for really in the play that he's making as expansive as it is i think that's the point though i mean with all respect to claudia like i don't think that this is a movie about decay i don't think it's about failure and i don't think that it's about death I think ultimately this movie, and I'm I'm kind of tipping my hand here. When this movie first came out, it just it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had a really viscerally emotional response to it. I mean, I cried during this movie for reasons that that Genevieve and I have kind of compared notes on over the years as just like the structure cry, where you see a piece of art that's doing something so profound that just like the way it's put together moves you emotionally. Mm. And I didn't have nearly that strong a response this time, maybe because it wasn't new to me. But I think that this movie is just grappling with the struggle to make art in a lot of different ways. And I think that Caden's attempt to create an orderly world that makes sense and follows his commands because the outside world is an incomprehensible chaos where everything seems to be falling apart and other people aren't having the same experiences as him or as each other, the kind of bollocks timelines that haunt this movie Mm. in terms of his daughter, Olive, is a small child, and then she's an adult doing a a sex-adjacent strip show, and then she's like dying of a disease as an adult. And meanwhile, his other daughter remains a small child. Like That kind of play with time, I think, just sort of reflects how chaotic and confusing the the real world feels. And he's trying to make sense of it all by putting it in order in, in this play. But the more effort that he puts into controlling the world through art, the more it becomes like unsustainable, un- like uninteresting as art and just non-functional as a project, the more he disappears into his own navel mm. um, trying to make it happen. And I, I just think that that's a really smart observation. I um I keep thinking, I, I find myself thinking of the cartoonist Chris Ware while watching the film, because I feel like in some ways they're philosophically symp- simpatico. But when I interviewed him, my email. Uh, I talked to him on the phone. He was nice, but he went to the interview by email. But but he made some reference to like you know when you're an artist, you sit down at your desk and you start working, and then 20 years go by, <laughs> and it really does kind of like that kind of. I think that experience is sort of what's captured in in this film as well. The thread with Olive just kills me, though. I mean, if you're talking about kind of kind of the emotional impact of this movie, you know, everything that happens with her and the way it affects Caden and just in, in Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance. I mean, you think about his confrontation with Jennifer Jason Lee in Berlin, which is, you know, <laughs> hilarious that she's speaking with a German accent. Uh, but then, but then, you know, it's like these years are, are lost. Like he's there, he confronts her about, about um, the fact that Olive has a, has a tattoos now and she's just a, you know, four year old. And it's like, well, she's not that she's older. Uh, so he's missed all the, all that time. And, th- and then of course that scene that Tasha mentioned 
where she has this sort of peep show and uh, he can't even, he can't really get to her. He kind of watches it and tries to communicate with her and then, and then loses his mind. And it's just like his emotions are so raw and so painful. And then you have another scene later where, where you see that, that, pink box the toy box that he had so carefully chosen and, and sent to her in accordance with the diary that he, of hers that he should not have read and uh and it's just been you know disposed of and his reaction to that is really crushing as well just it, among other things this movie was a reminder of just how much i love philip seymour hoffman as an actor he's so yeah. freaking good i mean we that loss i mean you think about losses in american cinema like people gone before their time etc i mean we kind of lost maybe the best actor of his generation <laughs> possibly yeah. certainly at the tippy top uh, upper echelon not to sidetrack too much but i remember when i saw buggy nights that performance felt so real to me and i'd, I'd seen him in stuff before but the first time he really registered for me even like i guess i can remember him from hard eight but but nonetheless it was like i i, I saw he, he's got to be that guy <laughs> you know it's such a, a convincing performance and then you see him you know talented mr ripley just around the corner from that he's so different it's it's yeah just a, a remarkable remarkable uh talent that said, and I know I'm like edging into really thin ice when I say anything even remotely negative uh, in the in the sphere of Philip Seymour Hoffman. I wish this movie gave him more to do. I mm. there's there's so much variety within his career, and this movie like he gets to start out as kind of a, a sharp and brassy and, and fast talking person, but he just very quickly degenerates into this sort of disintegrating sad sack. Mm -hmm. And he's just, he's not allowed to do a whole lot with that character that varies uh, over the course of two hours. And I, he's so obviously capable of it. I wish this role maybe had more flexibility in it and more room for him to play with. Scott, you were you were talking through the whole timeline of of yeah. Olive, but you didn't touch on that final scene. Yeah, with the, which, with the deathbed scene. Whew. I mean, this is an agonizing movie yeah. in a lot of ways. It 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 does touch on a lot of things about the way that how difficult it is to communicate with other people and connect with other people and to some degree control other people or understand other people in a way that again I think is really insightful. But I don't think there's anything in the movie more painful than that moment where his adult daughter, who he's been kept away from, confronts him with a bunch of things that aren't true, mm -hmm. that she's been told are true, demands that he abase himself and apologize for them, and then refuses to forgive him, and, and then dies. <laughs> and and yeah. she's, adult Olive is played by Robin Weigert in probably the most astonishing casting choice in this movie for me. Like I, I remembered some of the people in this movie, but the this cast is amazing. But her popping up just completely blew my mind. Where, where have I seen her? Uh, she Deadwood. was Calamity Jane in Deadwood. Okay. And she popped up. She's been a bunch of stuff, but yeah, yeah. She popped up recently in something that was just the polar opposite of that, that I really liked her in. Oh, Bombshell? she was, uh, she She's was in, in Smile. Smile and she was <laughs> fascinating and terrifying in Smile. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. It was one of those things, one of those faces I couldn't quite connect with the name, but it is, yeah. it is a lovely performance. And that, that scene is, is, is absolutely crushing. It's interesting. I mean, before the show is kind of likening this movie to that moment in the breakfast club where Ali Sheedy just dumps the, all the contents of her purse 
<laughs> you know, onto the table, and it's just a, it's a bunch of stuff that they all I'll now have to unpack. And it just it seems like that is what we are sort of getting from Charlie Kaufman here. I mean, Charlie Kaufman has made himself part of the work before uh, adaptation, which we'd cover on the, on the show, being a prime example of that. And we we kind of know who the Charlie Kaufman type is, but this is just this is the whole thing. This is everything. <laughs> this is like this is like him pouring himself into his work and, and into the work in a way that is, you know, of course, full of, you know, s- s- a certain amount of self-loathing and self-criticism and, uh, you know, concerns about his limitations as, as, as an artist and sort of the box that he sort of puts himself in. It, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to see a movie that's just this, this raw, really. It's so personal, even though, even though the, the structure of it is very complex and, and, and even in kind of and heady, and would seem to be distancing in a way, but it, it, that's not really the way the film plays. There's not a distancing effect here. It's very, it, it's very just, it puts everything out on the, on the table in an unflattering way, uh, you, you know, in that unflattering Charlie Kaufman way. And I, and I was just kind of bowled over by how personal a film it was and just how much of himself he was able to put out, put out there, particularly in an unflattering way. Yeah, it's it's yet another story about anxiety. I mean, it's fundamentally like the the self-examination and the the way everything disintegrates when he's not looking at it. You know, time passes radically for people outside his sphere the moment he loses control over them. You know, the the moment he he lets go and loses focus on them, they suddenly evolve in ways that he can't predict and can't reach anymore. All of this has the logic of a dream, and it it feels a lot like a proto version of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which mm-hmm. we also talked about on the show, just in terms of it being like a literal dream logic. You, you're, you go into a room looking for something, you can't find it, and then you suddenly realize that 16 years have passed, and there's no way that it's still going to be there, and it's changed form. And by, by the way, the room's on fire, and maybe you should have noticed that earlier, but then you realize it's been on fire for a really long time, and that's how it's supposed to be. Like all of this stuff, the things that come in and out of focus or you know change radically it's all just part of uh, dream logic. And that may be an element of this movie that I think gets pushed too far. Like I love some individual bits in it, like the house on fire, which I keep coming back to because that's maybe the clearest and most obvious symbol in all of this. But the moment on the plane where he's reading a book by Hope Davis's character, and then she starts narrating it, and then she's there, and she she has been narrating it, and then the things that she does become part of the book. That is a big piece of dream logic nonsense that I'm not sure fits in thematically, except as an anxiety moment. But I found it very funny. It's really funny. I mean, it's it's almost like a Zucker Abrams Zucker gag in some ways too. You <laughs> and know, it takes and place it, on an airplane. Oh my God, Keith. Right. Exactly. I cracked it. But I mean. One thing that's maybe important to remember with this movie is that Kaufman worked in sketch comedy television shows, most most notably the Dana Carvey show, but a couple of others too. And it, it almost like sometimes it, these these sequences kind of have the feel of like sketch ideas that are kind of woven into a, a, a larger tapestry of, of, of strange ideas as well. I think the dream logic is most evident to me in the relationships where it's like, you know, 
um hazel you know you know he they're they're in love and then you know it, it goes wrong i mean there's a progression there it goes wrong and then you know they start seeing other people but then the way she's just kind of in his life and then out of his life and then you know central to his life and then you know he's married and that marriage kind of falls apart it's 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 all and they also seem to behave like one another in some ways hey hazel and uh uh claire uh, michelle williams character it's it is dreamy that's that's true <laughs> i mean hazel and yeah. You, you put you put Samantha Morton and Emily Watson in the same movie. I'm just I'm kind of drowning. <laughs> you know, they look so similar to me. Uh, uh, so uh, that, that 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 always that threw me for a loop. But I think that I think that a lot of those moments, those kind of absurdist moments, even the ho- the ho- the house on fire thing is just great as a metaphor, as both a metaphor and a piece of set design, and you know, as a as a place where you can to make jokes. I mean, all that was great. But I, I did think feel like some of the, the like a lot of those absurdist moments particularly when they were really matter of fact like like the the bit on the plane and then and the one I the thing I mentioned about John Jason Lee suddenly having this this <laughs> this German accent it's so welcome in this film because the film is very heavy it really does need these moments of kind of levity that Kaufman's so good at bringing to the table he his movies are so tortured but also really funny because I think if, you, if I think if you just get the tortured part if you just get this the, the self-loathing the the sickness the death the kind of like uns, you know anxiety everything that just kind of like weighs this film in other coffin films down that would be kind of tough to to handle but but see i don't i don't know man I, it's just like comedy without any catharsis to it to me and and you know there's there are jokes in here but but I, levity is is it's like i but they're I, there i mean i don't, I don't really sense laugh, a lot of you laugh at least this i laugh i laugh but, but, it's, but it's but it's it's, it's not it's, it's hard it's, 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 this is hard but yeah. so is I, it's, I'm not thinking- a, it's not a release it's not it, it doesn't it doesn't break things up because all of these all of this humor is like part of the structure of decay as well so it's not a relief or a release from from the ongoing like bigger picture jokes it's just all kind of part and parcel of it i think it's a little more of a chuckle fest than i'm thinking of ending things though <laughs> No, that's that's well, certainly true. Yeah, but 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 it's got that dog. That dog. The dog's good. Right. No, but you need it. I'm glad. I, 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 I'm. I welcome all of these developments, even though, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 pretty tough. It's not his least funny film, but there's a an absurdism, I guess, just sort of weaved throughout the entire thing that. It, it, like reads as humor, but a very straight faced unbudging humor. And I think for me, one of the biggest things there is just the fact that nobody calls him on any of this. You know, when when he decides that he needs a version of himself to play himself and then he needs a version of Hazel to assist the version of himself and then he needs a, a third version of Hazel. Nobody questions those decisions. There's grumbling about the the different layers as people start interacting like outside their particular shell of meta but nobody says like look this is ridiculous there's there's the one moment where an actor says like look when are we going to get an audience i love that it's been 17 years oh my god and i I also love the actor who who gets criticized for the way he walks how how, how natural it is and he's he's trying to get that right looks more you know walk walk more convincingly is an extremely difficult direction to follow uh uh and again nice little nice little uh, comedy note there but i did like that i did i i did feel like the film needed at some point that moment where it's like what are we doing here <laughs> we've been doing this forever and nobody is seeing this happen like what is the actual like plan here 
and I like, but I, I also like that 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 he's the script is still being you know well tended to. <laughs> like there, you still have a script supervisor who's on top of all the changes that are being made. And the set designers who are just being forced to build more and more and more of the city. You know what else is a, a kind of big laugh moment is when he first sees that, I don't know, like aircraft carrier building facility, whatever the hell it is where he ends up staging the play. The hangar, yeah. And the same uh, real estate agent that showed Hazel the, the burning house shows this <laughs> place to him and he's like what was this for and she's like oh plays shakespeare and then there's just a, a cut to you know this this giant echoing space that goes off almost into infinity like that that's a laugh out loud moment that's a catharsis moment that's a that's such a that's a terry gilliam did you get a lot of terry gilliam vibes from this movie mm-hmm. like that oh, was for sure. definitely that uh, just the, that entire set and just that like uh, it, it felt that felt so like so brazilly i think that and is a we really interesting easily could compare this with, with bo is afraid too if, we, oh, if, God, we, yeah. if we'd it would have worked really well with that as well i mean no, that's just another dream logic one but i man i i think this movie is lighter and funnier and more smartly observant in a lot of ways than bo is afraid is because bo is afraid just sort of feels like the experience of being this one person and this movie, again, I just I feel it's about the struggle to make art that reflects some form of, of reality with truth and yet is still watchable. I, that's that's the fight that I see Caden fighting throughout this whole movie. To back up to the where we began, I mean, another way of looking at Synecdoche is Caden is a Synecdoche too. Who ha- Synecdoche who happens to live in New York, but is sort of like, you know, as peculiar and particular as this person is in some ways, kind of an everyman, maybe, maybe question mark. I don't want to commit to this th- that feeling too strongly, or just just the artist, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, just um, someone who's, who is uh, a- attempting to say something about the world and and failing. I mean, I think the film is about failure. I mean, it, it, you know, the, he he doesn't, you know, it, it's so self critical. Caden gets to this point where it's where where he he totally loses the plot. He can't he can't you know I mean this world can't he can't control and and it actually kind of not not just can't control but he kind of it kind of loses any meaning and becomes as I said narrower you know even though it, it expands and also becomes small at the same time because he's kind of realizing that that it's become this kind of narcissistic experiment that that he's really just describing himself and his own his own view of his own kind of like um small world really not not and not and missing everything else missing missing other people missing what's ha- the the act what's actually happening in the world outside of his uh hangar uh, you know etc at the same time though i mean his last words are i finally figured out how to do the play like i don't think this is about a failure to create art it's i it, there's a failure to to communicate and connect with the people he he thinks at least mean most to him but i just i think it's about how the struggle to make art that lives up to all of your expectations often ends in a kind of perfectionism that means you never actually finish it. You know, it's just the the creation becoming its own cycle. The line, I've finally figured out how to do the play. I'm not sure that's the exact wording, wording, but some variant on that, he says, at least three or four times throughout this movie. And each time it's a little bit of a laugh line because 
no matter how much time has passed, no matter how far down the rabbit hole he's gone, he keeps having new ideas and, and thinking, okay, this is the one. This is the one that redeems the 17 years that I've sunk into this. This is the one that redeems the huge neighborhood full of dead people in a, a way that's never really fully explained. I always do. You, do you have theories for that? I always assumed that uh, there was just a riot where they probably the the adherents rose up to defend this artwork and people who are ready to be done with it. Like they fought amongst each other and there was civil war. But I'm not sure we oh. get any indication. Oh, I just assumed all that was external. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it, it was that, just that that developing was, the whole movie of just like things getting worse and worse on the outside and in this kind of yeah. almost like a, apocalyptic you know event that that is that has been kind of ongoing as this as this production has dragged on and on and on. So I felt like that was kind of the the end of that and just kind of, you know, sort of the death of everything. Hmm. I mean, it's definitely left open-ended and I think it's a really interesting note. I think it's also really interesting to notice that Caden only really seems to become happy and content when other people are telling him what to do and he stops thinking. You know, mm. he he when he's cleaning his wife, ex-wife, question marks? Ex-wife, yeah. Apartment? Did they ever get divorced? I mean, he well, marries someone well, else, but... Well, well, yeah, presumably, I mean, who, who knows? <laughs> Is that kind of a riff on Mrs. Doubtfire, too? I mean, they never interact with one another. He's never in drag, but it's but it is kind of like he becomes the housekeeper in order to try to, to reunite with his wife, maybe? Who knows? Mm, yeah, but in Mrs. Doubtfire, he's trying to reunite with his kids more than his yeah, wife, if okay. I remember correctly. <laughs> I, I've only seen the movie once, and it... Very Tasha. Stuff. I thought you like movies. It'll, it'll come up again as a classic <laughs> pairing with something. Um, you know, I will, uh, one other thing that I kind of one other kind of random note with this movie that I think kind of connects with being John Malkovich is this idea that Charlie Kaufman has of how living with an artist and a, you know a genius is, is eventually <laughs> becomes a a sad and disillusioning experience you know like like you know I, I think about think about how you know John Cusack's character and in, in being a John Malkovich you know is, is able to triumph as uh, as Malkovich he becomes this 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 puppeteer and he's got he has Catherine Keener and everything's going great but then and, and, and then here with uh, Michelle Williams who thinks he's a genius and is saying oh poor you and it, you know at, at the beginning about all of the things that are bothering him is so sympathetic to every every thing he's going through but then the you know, the long-term effect of actually living with somebody like that <laughs> It's just it doesn't. It, those relationships don't last. Like everything's everything sours. You know, you don't. You can't be wowed by this person's genius anymore because you just have to. You have to kind of live with this neurotic disaster who's who seems you know unkempt and distracted and and uh, and way too too much in his own head to give you anything that you might want. I think the fact that his wife is also an artist and an artist who surpasses him mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, who, who goes on to great success and acclaim and glory and seems to forget about him entirely and build a life that has no connection to him. Uh, and an artist who he seems to not particularly appreciate while they're together. I, I don't think he's not in any way, he doesn't, we never see him being supportive of her art either. Yeah, he seems a little bit baffled by it. Uh, mm. Then again, it's it's maybe a little bit baffling, but I mean, so is his art. So yeah, you can well, you can take that down the rabbit hole. He does also, you know, 
forget the name of the daughter they have together. Which <laughs> uh, is, uh, yeah, generally a bad, bad sign. Uh, oh, I'm not, I'm not talking about Michelle Williams' uh, wife. Oh, I'm talking, talking about uh, Catherine Keener's oh, wife. Sure, okay. You know, she, I mean, she goes off to Germany because uh, she's a huge success and she stays in Germany because she's a huge oh, success. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, that's and right. And just kind of eclipses him in a lot of ways. I kind of want to see that. That's a pre- that's pretty neat piece of art she's creating. <laughs> oh, the, the wee little sub postage stamp yeah. size things. Yeah, yeah. we have to wear the special glasses to look at them. I like it. I mean, I, it seems very symbolic that the one, he's he's trying to create one piece of art that just gets bigger and bigger and mm-hmm. bigger and more and more out of control. And her art is incredibly tiny. And it's very clear that she's produced like galleries and galleries of the stuff. Like she can't go to his play opening at the beginning of the story because she's got multiple canvases that she's got to turn out for a show. So like in the time period that he's creating one thing, one big thing that never comes to fruition, she's creating many, many tiny things yeah. and becoming hugely famous as a result. Yeah. That, that's not an accident. Not just, not just tiny, but refined, uh, you know, I mean, to, to be able to create in that, in that space, you know, and of course he's creating on the biggest possible space, you know, his work is, is, uh, messy and ill thought through and kind of metastasizing out of control. And, um, you know, meanwhile, she's able to kind of to have the sort of discipline and uh, to and refinement to be able to do these tiny little little uh, pieces of art. You know, uh, as we've been talking about this, I, I found myself wondering, because Charlie Kaufman put so much of himself into his work, you know, we kind of discussed that vis-a-vis adaptation and the the threads of like specifically anxiety and self-loathing and the creation of art and and to some degree the writing of screenplays running through so much of his art uh i I kind of backed up to look up his marital status and see if he was married to another artist and as near as i can tell he is actually married to a woman who has a seemingly pretty significant following for her paintings yeah denise monahan i think is is yeah mm -hmm what she does uh, full time and you know she she seems to be quite successful at it <laughs> that's that's a little naked charlie i'm sure they're very supportive of each other in real life though yeah the, she I, I don't know if she's run off to germany with their daughter or anything <laughs> like that seems like seems like there's you know according to wikipedia there's still uh, there's still an item I wanted to loop back to the whole idea of uh, only being happy when somebody else is in control because we we didn't really finish that up. We got a little uh, distracted with the whole toilet cleaning thing, but as one as one does, as one does. But by the end of the movie, he's having all of his his movement and his lines and his behavior dictated to him by Diane Weiss's character. And that is the point where he seems satisfied and content. And Keith kind of raised the question of whether this is some kind of kink. I don't know. I I think it just kind of comes back to the idea of art is hard and it's full of decisions and it's full of the struggles to connect and the struggles to complete. And when he, he gets to the point where just somebody else is giving him everything and he no longer has to make any decisions, he just seems a lot more calm and content in his life. Which is maybe the most cynical thing in a very cynical movie. Mm, indeed. Yeah. I mean, though, though, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's almost a resignation that happens at a certain point. You know, just just exhausted, <laughs> uh, right? I mean, like, you know, I, I, one of the more 
touching little moments in the movie where it was just, it was just you know, it, it, towards the end where he just asked to put his head on, is it Hazel's sh- shoulder uh, or is it Diane Weiss's shoulder? I can't remember, but... Uh, but it's, just... it's neither one of them. It's a woman that we just saw for the first time. <laughs> oh, really? She has to introduce herself to him and she's like, you know, oh, I was I was the mother in that flashback oh, scene. Oh, that's right, right. And he like mm-hmm. barely had any memory of, he had no memory of it. That's right, but I, I like that idea of of it, and it reminded me a little bit of the end of um, Scorsese's After Hours too, where, where Griffin Dunn's character just kind of has this little like slow dance with the with an, an older woman, and it just kind of like you know just just kind of at the end of this terrible chaotic night of just having some little moment of of peace. It's uh, kind of a lovely moment in this film. At the same time, I mean, one of the things that you could certainly unpack a bit in this movie is the degree to which like one of Caden's repeated lines throughout is, I'm so lonely. He has just a string of women who are attracted to him, who, you know, seduce him or offer themselves to him or marry him or have children with him. But none of them ever seem to really scratch that itch for him. He's always sort of sad and almost resigned as he goes to bed with one beautiful star after another. And very often when they're inviting him into bed, he's telling them how lonely he is. Also, uh, just a very sad element of the the story. Like, I, I think that the connection that he's looking for, he thinks he can only find in art. And he just doesn't connect to people very well, no matter how hard they try. Well, we're going to be talking more about this film in the next episode, but, but while we're focused on Coffin and all things Coffin, where, where do you see this fitting into the whole of his filmography? You know, it was not a huge hit. You know, it followed two successes. And then what came after this was Anomalisa, and I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, I'll kick things off. I would argue that there is sort of a retreat into darkness <laughs> that if anything you know the subsequent films go even deeper into it than this one as bleak as it is but but perhaps others see it differently i'm thinking of ending things feels considerably darker to me and i would say anomalisa does too at least as far as the protagonist is concerned like lisa escapes his his gravity and gets to go have her own life which seems pretty sunny compared to being in his orbit. And it it kind of mirrors what happens with Adele. There's a sense that fits very, very well into Charlie Kaufman's self-loathing of once women escape the me character, they're happier. But I, I think I'm thinking of ending things feels to me like his darkest and saddest work. And it, it does feel a little bit like he's moved from like fairly weird and still like sprightly stories, which, you know, who can say how much that's the the Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry influence to just increasingly dark and sad stories. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, adaptation seems like kind of a, you know, the jumping off point here in, in the sense that, you know, he quite literally found a way to insert himself into a work, you know, when it, when it became clear in the writing process that uh, The Orchid Thief really wasn't going to be conventionally adaptable and then then he sort of makes himself a character it's all it's all sort of done in a meta fashion adaptation but i think i think that was kind of the the seed 
for Synecdoche, New York, in the sense that it was like, okay, I, I, I've invented this this character that could function in a movie. Let's just go all the way. Let's let me give you the full Charlie Kaufman experience, and um, and and I and almost you almost get a sense of like that this that he, he must have known this movie was going to be commercially d- difficult, <laughs> you know, that, that he was going to be testing people with it. It is it, it is because it is so raw and so so much fully himself. But it, it but it, 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 to me it feel has that ex- the, one of the exciting things about it is that it seems like the type of film that uh, by a filmmaker who never thinks they're going to going to be allowed to work again. Like it's just mm-hmm. like I'm just going to do every I'm going to put all of myself into this film and it, you know and whatever happens happens because it, you know they they can't take this one away from me it's going to get made and it's going to get you know it's going to be it's I'm going to put my whole self into it with not without the expectation that anything else is going to come out after that and and I think that's the the fullness of this film that the the audaciousness of it is still just so inspiring to watch and how personal it is it's so refreshing to kind of ref- to revisit a film like this, you know, certainly at a time when, you know, in the middle of summer where we're, where we're really seeing a lot of sort of corporate tooled films to see something that is, that is this personal and this, it goes this far out uh, on a limb. Um, there's something just so exhilarating about that of just, of just, you know, going, going as hard as this film goes. <laughs> well, we have plenty more to talk about uh, with this film and we'll talk about it in relation to Asteroid City in the next episode. In the meantime, we'll be right back after a short break with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the next picture show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh's most recent episode celebrates Pride Month with a top five list themed around LGBTQ plus movies. We also want to bid a tearful farewell from Chicago, but not our hearts or the podcasting world to Adam, who's leaving our fair city. Good luck, Adam. Yeah, good we'll luck. see you around. I, mean, I, was, I was his home. I mean, I get it. But it's it is it's upsetting to ha- to not have uh, Adam here. Adam's uh, a good friend and has been a friend for so long, <laughs> like twenty years, uh, I think. I've known Adam, and uh, um, well, I'm talking about it, he's like he's dead. He's alive. He's very much alive. And, and, and <laughs> g- 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 he's, I mean, uh, it's going to be awesome. He's going back to our shared alma mater, uh, University of oh, Iowa, right. to be a teacher, he's which is be, very can you imagine Schenectady, how, New York uh, themed. I mean, he already teaches like a podcasting class, and he's going to be doing that there as well but man he's just he's a talented guy really good communicator really approachable i think i think the students of uh uh university of iowa are super lucky to have him well this is an extremely meta pairing we have <laughs> this week about extremely self-reflective creators so we decided it was a good excuse for meta feedback where we criticize and examine ourselves i think we have that in the form of some sort of phone call Guten Tag, this is Genevieve calling from my new home of Berlin, and I will be playing the role of feedback guest for this portion of the script. Uh, With this pairing, The Next Picture Show has now done five episodes on Charlie Kaufman as a writer, but only two on him as a director. So the time has come for me to ask my co-hosts, is it better when Charlie Kaufman has someone else direct his scripts, or are you into pure, uncut Kaufman? All right. Well, that is a really insightful question for one of our listeners, uh, one of our best listeners. Yeah. Um, well, I, I would say, <laughs> I would say frequent listeners. Yeah, right. And it's someone who 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 listens to our to each episode repeatedly. <laughs> Lucky Sometimes her. Sometimes rewinding, cutting things out, <laughs> pasting things together. So, 
All right, let's let's consider this question. Before we do, I, I think it's worth remembering. You know, we're talking. We think when you think about films written by Kaufman but directed by others, you think John Malkovich being John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. You think adaptation, but you got to factor in human yep. nature and, and, and Eternal Sunshine, of course. You got to factor in human nature. You got to factor in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind too. Yeah. So, Tasha, what's your answer? I, I feel like we touched on this a little bit accidentally at the end, just in terms of like I wouldn't trade Synecdoche for I, I would have a hard time giving up being John Malkovich, but I, I would I would not like give you Synecdoche, New York, if you held it over my head that you were going to take Eternal Sunshine away from me. It would be a hard decision, but Synecdoche just speaks to me more in its its bigger themes, you know. And it fascinates me more as like just a a, a creed de corps, like a an attempt to reckon with everything going through his mind in so many ways. If you're just saying you can either have Charlie Kaufman director or everybody else who's ever directed a film, that's that's also an easy choice. You know, there's just there's too many other options and he's only directed three films of his own. So if you're saying which is his best, which is the best Charlie Kaufman film, that's a completely different question. And I, I'm just never going to be able to let go of how like deliciously weird and unlike anything else being John Malkovich is. But eh, in the end, I guess if it's a hard choice between all of the directors doing Charlie Kaufman and Charlie Kaufman, I'll pick all of the directors. If it's a hard choice of who directs the next Charlie Kaufman film, though, that's where we end up with a big question mark. I want to see more Spike Jones, uh, Charlie Kaufman, I think. Being John Malkovich and then I think, you know, Eternal Sunshine um, and Adaptation, uh, I mean, those those are those are excellent films, and you can see this sort of complementary r- relationship. I think Spike Jones is really good at providing the right kind of framework for Kaufman's work. I, I but I felt like Eternal Sunshine was a case where the where the efforts visual visually of the filmmaker, the the creativity, the uh, the spark of that film was was as much on a directorial level as it was on a writing level, which is kind of imp- which is close to impossible. With Charlie Kaufman, he really—he's—he's he's the rarest of rare writers whose whose voice comes through stronger than a director. One of the things that's been interesting to me, though, about Charlie Kaufman as director is I think he's gotten better. Even though *Synecdoche*, New York, is my favorite of his three directorial efforts by far, I think that he's grown immensely as as a filmmaker and as an imagist uh, i mean there's there's so much uh, so much to the texture and the look and the some of the sequences in a film like i'm thinking of anything so that that i that it kind of makes me think that his he's got a lot of promise in that arena that he's kind of picked up a few things and and uh you know and now you know when when he could go, can go go back to a you know a, you know if he if there's a point where he he writes himself a script on the level of Synecdoche New York again, he's going to have, I think, more of an ability to turn something great out of it because I think he's gotten, I think he's a better filmmaker now than he used to be. I think that's true. But I also think that Spike Jones has one thing that Charlie Kaufman does not, and that's a sense of the commercial. And I wouldn't mind having another voice in the mix who can kind of steer him away from some of his more throw in everything in the kitchen sink Mm -hmm. tendencies. You know, Anomalisa is a much smaller film than either I'm Thinking of Endings or Synecdoche. And 
in part, I think that's because he's got a co-director and because he's got the technological limitations of working in stop motion. Mm-hmm. You know, he he just doesn't have the time, space, and budget to make Anomalisa into a, a three-hour sprawl about the nature of all humanity. I think that the the power of a, a Spike Jones is not only like lightening things up in terms of sparky visualization of some of the stranger ideas, but also in terms of just kind of like steering him a little bit into accessibility. Yeah. Well, also just he, I think Spike Jones has a sense of like, okay, put down the brush. <laughs> Picasso. Like, <laughs> like just you're, you're, the work is done. You don't need to keep, keep painting. I think he has that, that, a, a, that uh, maybe a keener sense of, of, uh, you know, of pace and of, of, you know, when to end things. Well, my answer is, I, I really do admire this film an, an awful lot, but I hadn't seen it since 2008, and I may not watch it again for another dozen plus years. And with Anomalisa, and, and I'm thinking of any things, I've, I've, I will probably revisit those films at some point. But you know, I'm not. It's not next on my queue. I could watch Being John Malkovich after we ended this sure. podcast. <laughs> Maybe I will actually watch. You know, and rewatchability isn't any. It isn't everything. But but I do. You know, I I, I hold those those the three big ones he did. Um, you know, with other directors in, in very high esteem. I actually like Human Nature too, and Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is a huge, you know, kind of interesting misfire. Uh, and, but uh, uh, that's, that's kind of needed. That's one where I think I would prefer the Charlie Kaufman directed version or or a different director. <laughs> yeah. Uh, than than yeah. Clooney doesn't really quite have the right sensibility for that. Uh, although I'm not really sure what his sensibility is. No, I know. <laughs> I, I, it's kind of it's it's kind uh, of refreshing in a way that that uh, George Clooney has some shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, the yeah, naked human that's, that's rather than him being rather than being awesome at everything including like selling tequila or whatever it is that he made a ton of money on ridiculous that's not to go too off topic did you see the james marsden interview where he talked about how he he wants to put out like the cheapest tequila like have his own tequila brand it's like cheap tequila in a plastic container <laughs> <You know? laughs> i uh i admire i admire yeah. that instinct well i, I, I think, I, I think we, we you've are officially like you, you you just said not to go too far afield but you've officially you've gone too far afield i went too far afield but you know what it's keeping with the spirit of, of the film that's i think right. in some ways so and, and, how what how how cheap a tequila would you buy from charlie kaufman versus how cheap a tequila would you buy from spike jones or uh, Andre? maybe our listeners can write in and, and weigh in on that topic what 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 would spike jones tequila taste like versus uh say charlie kaufman's that's 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 our problem charlie, our charlie kaufman tequila is like 50 percent worms <laughs> all right on that note we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's all for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Asteroid City, a film that goes down a different sort of metafictional rabbit hole. Uh, look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next time, remember you can live in a burning house, but there may be some long-term health consequences to that decision. <laughs>